Welcome to Gossip at the Guildhall, the podcast where we tell you all things Guildhall. We'll be talking about weddings, about dinners, and of course about our history, all served with a healthy dose of gossip. As always, we welcome interaction from our listeners, and you can get in touch with us at guildhall at rbwm.gov.uk, or follow us on all the usual social media channels. Everything we talk about will be pretty light-hearted, so pour yourself a coffee, put your feet up, and enjoy the show. In today's episode, we're talking about the Interregnum. That's the 11-year period between the execution of King Charles I and the succession of King Charles II. Now, it's the only time in British history that there has been no monarch, and it's the closest Britain has ever come to being a republic. Confusingly, it goes by lots of different names. The interregnum is a Latin phrase, and that literally means in-between, because it's a period between the two kings, so it's a much later phrase. And it's a little bit misleading, because it leads us to believe that there was always going to be a return of the monarchy. And that's not necessarily true. In its own time, it was called the English Commonwealth, That stems from the radical Protestant idea that under this new regime, wealth would be shared with all the people of England, literally a common wealth. But this is also a little bit misleading. To call it the English Commonwealth doesn't consider Ireland, Scotland and Wales, all of which were very much part of this story. Others call it the Protectorate, an era in which the immortally famous Oliver Cromwell ruled as Lord Protector. But this too isn't a great title, because Oliver Cromwell was not wholly in command of the country between 1649 and 1660, and he also wasn't known as Lord Protector until about midway through his rule. So here we have 11 years of British history, where historians can't even agree on what to call it. In itself, this fact is very symbolic. We can't agree on what to call it, because we can't agree on what actually happened during this time. This period is heavily coloured by the mythology which surrounds this era. How we view the Civil War, and the 11-year period which followed it, can reveal a lot more about us today than it does about the actual historical period. So, for example, monarchists generally call it the interregnum, because the meaning of in-between sits well with monarchists and their view of how kings and queens is the normal way in which Britain is governed. Left-wing historians, parliamentarians, and particularly republicans today, tend to call it the English Commonwealth, because again, that interpretation sits well with their own world views. While those who support Oliver Cromwell as a historical personality tend to call it the Protectorate, an age defined by the man. So which definition if any, is true. Was the return of the monarchy inevitable? Was it an age of equality for the commons? Or was it a period characterised by the persona of one man? In one respect, none of these definitions are true. In another, they're all true. So to start this story, we need to go back to 1649, the year in which this period is generally regarded as having begun. 1649 saw one of the most controversial and shocking events of British history. The English Parliament ordered the execution of the king, 
over a thousand years of English monarchy came to an end. And in our primary school narrative, it's this moment that Oliver Cromwell dominates the country. Absolute monarchy is finished forever. Parliament had won. But had they? Let's take a closer look at the year 1649. Things were undoubtedly tense. Forget the idea that the civil war had been king against Parliament. The initial struggle had been to impose legal restrictions on the king. That was it. In order to achieve this victory, Parliament had commissioned the new model army, the very first European standing army, and it was wildly successful. Victory by victory, Parliament took control of the country. But by the late 1640s, people began to realise that these victories did not, in fact, belong to Parliament. They belonged to the new model army. And as the generals began to grow and consolidate their power, it became increasingly likely that government in Britain was about to be usurped by the military. Now, nothing proved this point more than the order to execute the king in 1648. Parliament had been set to refuse the order, so the military had stepped in to ensure that any opposition MPs were arrested or otherwise blocked from attending Parliament. And we're left with the so-called Rump Parliament, a group of Puritan MPs who were known sympathisers with the military's own views and which could be really relied upon to carry out the will of the generals. This was the sole remaining governing body left in England, a puppet government for the army. And it's deeply unpopular for obvious reasons. The idea of a military dictatorship was as abhorrent to the 17th century as it is to us today. And in fact, it was probably more abhorrent. People had spent the last six years fighting a vicious war to preserve their legal freedoms, only to risk installing absolute power into the hands of the army. And in Ireland, there was widespread rebellion amongst the Anglo-Norman Irish and the Irish Gallic Catholics. In Scotland, too, there was political mutiny within the Scottish Parliament, who refused to acknowledge the Rump Parliament and instead declared their loyalty to the Prince of Wales, who was now, of course, technically King Charles II. In England, there was less overt opposition to the Rump Parliament, and there are two good reasons for this. Firstly, practically, England was exhausted. It had been the scene of most of the fighting for the last six years. Its economy was flattened. The loss of lives, though comparatively not vast, was nonetheless significant. Accepting the rump parliament was the price the English had to pay for peace. And importantly, there was very little in the way of a viable alternative. Secondly, was a fear of worse to come. The Rump Parliament may have been disliked, and in many ways it was a puppet of the army. However, it was the only remaining vestige of legitimate government left. If the Rump Parliament was dissolved, nothing stood in the way of England and an outright military dictatorship. So it was reluctantly accepted. And it's at this point that Cromwell comes to the fore. Although in 1649 he's not absolute, but he is still the head of the new model army, and that makes him influential. He's also a member of the Rump Parliament, so he can kind of control the direction of Parliament from within. 
but for most of the first half of 1649, England, and I am referring to England here, not to the other British countries, effectively stalled as the politicians tried to decide how the country should be governed, and they're ever fearful of the growing power of the army. Things are tense at this point. No one is sure what the future holds for the country. But before anything can be done to decide England's fate, Ireland flared up in rebellion. Now, this was a coalition between royalists, moderate parliamentarians, and the Irish Catholics. But this new rebellion, in many ways, it was just as fragmented and divided as the country was. It wasn't united in many ways, but it was united against the new model army. They knew what they were fighting against. In July 1649, Cromwell left for Ireland. The Irish campaign would drag on until 1652, and it would undoubtedly be one of the most bloody and destructive campaigns ever fought on British soil. The Irish lost, and over 50,000 people were shipped off to the West Indies as slaves. Others were simply killed. In total, the years 1642 to 1652, so a 10-year period, saw the death or deportation of almost half the entire Irish Catholic population. And Catholic land ownership in Ireland went from 60% to 80%. And this is despite the fact that Irish Catholics were the overwhelming majority in Ireland. This was almost ethnic cleansing. Cromwell himself did not stay for the entire campaign. He had been in Ireland for a, about a year when news reached him that Charles II had landed in Scotland. Now, this was dangerous. England was still very uncertain, and most people did tend towards the monarchy. The rump parliament itself could not be trusted to hold out for the army. If Charles II reached London when Cromwell was still in Ireland, the monarchy could have returned there and then. So Cromwell rushed back to England and from there he launched an invasion of Scotland. Now he wasn't as brutal as the Scots as he was to the Irish. The Scots were Protestants like him, but he did demonstrate a real will of iron. The Battle of Dunbar saw the destruction of most of the Scottish army. Charles II and his army marched rapidly south, hoping to capture London. But Cromwell gave chase finally defeating Charles II at the Battle of Worcester, 1651. So now the Royalists were well and truly defeated. But there was also a much wider political impact from Cromwell's victory in 1651. Firstly, more than at any other stage in the earlier Civil War, these had indeed been Cromwell's victories. He was the man who had crushed the Irish and the Scottish revolts. And he was therefore seen in 1651 really as the single most important man in the country. And he also used the campaigns to destroy any remaining independence in Scotland and Ireland, neither of which had been formally united with England until this stage. They had shared a monarch, but they had remained independent. Not anymore. And this meant that the Scottish and Irish delegations that came to Westminster after 1651 were under Cromwell's thumb. And Cromwell also seems to have realised his weakness in the early 50s. He was terrifyingly strong, he was more powerful than anyone else in the country. But he realised that what he lacked 
was a sense of legitimacy. Kings were legitimate by right of God. Parliaments were legitimate by the right of the people. But what claim did Cromwell have to rule England? And so for the first two years, he tried to rule through the rump parliament, maintaining this small, divided, factitious group was the only way to ensure stability in an otherwise anarchical country. The problem was, as he soon realised, England was almost ungovernable. All of the factions and divisions which had been present throughout the Civil War had not gone away with his military victories. If anything, they had gotten worse. The Rump Parliament, even though it had been created to be a puppet of the army, by 1653 could barely agree to any reforms. They did allow Cromwell to get rid of the bishops from the Church of England, and they allowed radical Protestants freedom of worship. But that was about it. By 1653, England was no closer to a political settlement than in 1649, when the king had been executed. And Cromwell was incensed. He clearly thought that the rump parliament would simply do his bidding. He was wrong. In 1653, he did the one thing which had triggered the civil war in the first place. He ordered the new model army to dissolve parliament. And this is crucial to remember. We like to remember the civil war as being about restoring the liberties of parliament against a tyrannical king. But here we see a military general dissolving parliament. England was not a republic. It was a military dictatorship. Charles I, when he prompted Parliament to begin the war against him, he had arrested five MPs. Cromwell arrested 50. So what next? Cromwell was faced with a real dilemma. On one hand, he still did not have any legitimacy to rule himself. That's not to say he wasn't ruling, but he didn't have a clearly defined role or accepted authority to govern. On the other hand... Parliament was so bitterly divided amongst itself that they had in many ways made themselves a disreputable government. We all remember Parliament's behaviour under Theresa May. This was ten times worse. And over the next year, we see an incredibly frustratingly complicated time, essentially of trial and error, where Cromwell was trying to figure out how best to govern. First of all, he orders a new Parliament to be commissioned. But rather than creating a parliament out of free elections, he ordered that his generals each appoint an MP. So we see a parliament, if you can call it that, of 140 people, all of whom were appointed by the army. Now you'd think that arranging such a small council to govern would ensure that Cromwell could do whatever he liked. You'd be wrong. Perhaps it's a measure of just how divided Britain was, but the Bare Bones Parliament, as it came to be known, it lasted less than a year. In truth, it was never going to be broadly accepted as a legitimate governing body. However, it did pass one piece of significant legislation. It offered Cromwell, first of all, the title of king, which he turned down. Then it offered him the title of Lord Protector, which he accepted. Now, this is an incredibly clever piece of PR by Cromwell. He had been accused, particularly since 1651, of trying to act like a king. He almost certainly wanted to be offered the role of king deliberately so he could turn it down. 
Then he adopted the role of Lord Protector. And again, this is very clever. The title of Lord Protector was not invented for him. There have been many Lord Protectors in English history, and they're usually appointed by a Regency Council when a monarch is too young or too ill to govern themselves. And the title itself indicates their role. Lord Protectors are there to protect the realm until such a time as sound government can be restored, usually by a monarch coming of age. So it's a temporary title. And this would instantly tell people across the country that Cromwell's aims were not to wear the crown, but to wield authority only until sound government could be re-established, until he could calm down Parliament or find a new political solution. Now, in reality, of course, we all know how many dictators gain power by pretending to be responding to a crisis. Adolf Hitler, Julius Caesar, even Emperor Palpatine from Star Wars, they all gain power through pretending to be temporarily usurping power for the safety of the realm. And that's exactly what Cromwell did in 1653. And he then called a real parliament. And in many ways this seems baffling. Parliament was notorious for being factitious and divided. And I think the only way we can explain it is that Cromwell wanted to demonstrate his new powers as Lord Protector, to make it generally accepted that he and he alone had the power to summon and to disband a parliament without resorting to military arrests. It was a way in which he could test his newfound legitimacy as a ruler amongst the ruling classes. Certainly he can't have expected this parliament to behave in any different way from the previous ones. He proposed 84 pieces of legislation, not a single one was passed, it was too divided for that. And as soon as law allowed, he dismissed this new parliament too. But the important point is that by 1654, Cromwell was accepted as the ruler by many people in England precisely because of this new title this new role which had been accepted tacitly by having a new brief parliament in 1654. And he very quickly tried to impose his rule by force. With this new title, with this new role, he devised a new system of government known to us as the rule of the generals in 1655. England was literally divided into about ten different regions, each of which was controlled by a general of the new model army. The generals ruled without checks and balances. They were answerable to Cromwell alone. This was a military centralisation such as England hadn't seen since the Norman Conquest. Now Cromwell was a staunch Protestant, and it's at this stage that the real puritanical wave came through. Theatres were closed, Sunday activities were banned, Christmas was cancelled, music, dancing, drinking, all discouraged. New taxes were raised to pay for the army. It's fair to say, most people were not very happy indeed. And in fact, there was a growing risk of popular rebellion, not in favour of any particular faction so much as to reopen the pubs and theatres. And more deeply than that, Cromwell's usurpation of power was deeply resented by many. These are people who had fought a war to protect liberty, and now they seem to be losing it. Cromwell had sought legitimacy and it had been accepted by the ruling elite, the gentlemen, the MPs, but it was not accepted by ordinary people. And although at 18 months, the rule of the generals lasted longer than any other Cromwellian 
government experiment. In 1656, it was the generals themselves who convinced Cromwell that they would be unable to govern effectively without a freely elected parliament. And this is quite an interesting point. It tells us that Parliament, even though it was widely mocked as being slow and inefficient, was already being seen as a symbol of freedom in Britain, something which we can relate to today. And so the second Protectoriate Parliament was summoned. It's got a wonderfully archaic title, and it was summoned at various intervals between 1656 and 1658. Predictably, perhaps, it achieved little beyond a drawn-out battle of wills between this parliament and the new model army. And nor was this new parliament perceived as a proper one. It banned any Catholics or known royalists from taking part, and it was still designed to be a puppet parliament for Cromwell. It was the veneer of legitimacy. It wasn't legitimate government itself. In 1657, having turned down the title of king... Cromwell took part in an installation ceremony, which officially bestowed the title of Lord Protector upon him. He had already had the title for some time. And this ceremony was balmy. For a start, no other Lord Protector had ever received a ceremony. Secondly, it was staged at Westminster Abbey, using St Edward's chair and the orb and the scepter. It didn't use a crown, but this was in every other respect a coronation, physically displaying Cromwell's power. And he was too perhaps hoping that the magic of monarchical ceremony might help bring unity to a country which in many other respects was splitting at the seams. If so, it didn't work. Britain in 1658 was just as divided as it had ever been. Cromwell he tried successive types of governing, from direct military rule to acting as a constitutional monarch to acting as an absolute monarch. But each time he was torn by the same dilemma. He could rule with an iron fist, as he did with the generals, but this way of governing was unpopular. It was hugely expensive, and it was ultimately doomed to fail, since it didn't have popular consent. He could also try and rule legitimately through an elected parliament. But this was inefficient, it was slow, it was factitious, and it also meant allowing people he disagreed with an official voice, and that's something Cromwell could never do. In September 1658, he caught a fever and died. But the interregnum didn't end with Cromwell. In true tyrant fashion, Cromwell was buried in Westminster Abbey with great pomp and ceremony, and his son inherited his title of Lord Protector. But it would not last for long. All of the hatreds, the frustrations, the divisions which were present in Britain for the last 20 years really erupted with Cromwell's death. It seems that Cromwell was the only man who could patch this divided country together. Two generals in particular made a bid for power, and this bid for power would change the country's history forever. George Monk and John Lambert had very different ideas about how to govern. Lambert favoured the Cromwellian model. He perhaps anticipated himself as stepping into Oliver Cromwell's shoes, and he certainly wanted a continuation of the Commonwealth. Monk, however, had been in touch with the exiled Charles II to offer him support. Now, for a moment it looked like civil war would erupt again. Monk marched south to London, Lambert marched north looking for a fight. But Lambert's army 
whether through political beliefs, religious motivation, or perhaps just sheer frustration at the constant political yo-yo, simply abandoned Lambert. He had to return to London alone and was effectively defeated. Monk reached London unchallenged and became the preeminent political player, and his ambition was clear. And we see once again in the 17th century an attachment to the idea of legitimacy. Monk recalled the only political body which was universally accepted as legitimate, because it had been called not by Cromwell or the generals, but by the executed Charles I, the rump parliament. It was brought back and gathered together in 1659, and it made one of the most important decisions ever made. After years of failed political experiments, of military oppression, and of the dissolution of their own rights, the rump parliament officially offered the country to King Charles II. This was the return of the king. Thanks for listening to this episode of Gossip at the Guildhall. Remember that we love to hear back from our listeners. Any feedback or advice is greatly appreciated. You can drop us a line at guildhall at rbwm.gov.uk or you can message us via any of our social media sites. If you enjoyed the show, we don't ask for much, but we'd love it if you could share it to any of your platforms. Get the message out there. Let other people enjoy the show. Thanks very much.